0: The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who commit heinous acts. I was born in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. So grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is the Upper Left Corner. Content warning. The following program may contain descriptions of violence and or sexual assault that may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. People are rich. In fact, only the very rich, educated, intelligent cultured can understand what I am saying. Beggars cannot come to me. Poor people cannot come to me. The gap is too big. They can hear me, but they cannot understand me. So it is natural, I'm the rich man's guru. Sheila, whatever your plans are, the folk at Pemberton are simply saying this, we don't want the Rajneeshis, we don't want the orange people in our town. What can I say? Tough titties. And you can see it. Religion is a sort of intoxication. This week, I'll be telling you about the commune of Rajneesh Purim in Oregon. Thanks for being patient, waiting for this episode. I took an Instagram poll a couple weeks ago asking what you wanted to hear a cult? Or PNW history, and it was a close one. It went back and forth there for a while, but Colt won. So, we are going to talk about the Rajneesh today. I apologize if you can hear running water in the back. It's actually a filter to an aquarium. My son just got a baby axolotl named Taco today, and he is currently in the room that I'm recording. But hopefully, by next time I record, he will be in his permanent spot. Now let's get our PNW town profile. Antelope, Oregon is a city in Wasco County located in north-central Oregon along Oregon State Route 218. By highway, the city is 34 miles northeast of Madras and 143 miles east of Portland. The town is just under half a square mile with an estimated population of 47 people as of 2012. Antelope was originally a stage and freight wagon road stop on the old Dalles to Canyon City Trail that took travelers to mine for gold. In 1863, Howard Maupin came to the area to operate a horse ranch and became the caretaker of the stage station, and he began raising cattle to provide meat for travelers. The community was considered to have been established in 1872 and was incorporated in 1901. At the end of the 1800s, antelope was booming as cattlemen and shortly after, sheepmen, grew prosperous in the area. In 1892, a school was constructed and a newspaper began publication, and within a few years, the population was 170. The growing town constructed a church, four hotels, seven saloons, a drugstore, barbershop, bowling alley, city hall, and a jail. However, a devastating fire swept through the business district in 1898, destroying the majority of the newly constructed buildings, most of which was never rebuilt. Adding to the decline of Antelope, and I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent here for a few minutes because I had never heard this part of Oregon history, and I found it so fascinating. So what also led to the decline of Antelope was the Range Wars in the late 1890s into the early 1900s. After the forced resettlement of the region's Native American groups onto reservations, the grasslands of eastern and central Oregon became available for agriculture and livestock, and the area was classified as open ranges. Basically, all locals were allowed to share the land. No specific person owned it. The land was excellent ground for cattle and sheep, as the new rail lines coming through allowed producers to ship both wool and cattle across the United States. This dramatically increased the number of people wanting to raise their cattle and sheep in the grasslands and also caused the current cattlemen and sheepmen to try and grow their herds and flocks. However, the rapid, unregulated use of the grasslands resulted in overgrazing. There were nearly 130,000 sheep between 1885 and 1910, and the land was unable to sustain that many animals and became degraded. Tensions grew between the cattle ranchers and sheepmen, leading to multiple range wars. Cattlemen blamed the sheepmen for the condition of the land, because unlike cattle, sheep will eat weeds in addition to native grasses, and as a result, the sheep were responsible for stripping the landscape of plant life. Additionally, they looked down upon the sheepmen as the cattlemen used horses to tend to their livestock while the sheepmen tended animals on foot. Meanwhile, wheat farming in the area was beginning to boom, and this exasperated the rangeland issues. The range wars began in the late 1890s with threats and minor property damage, but escalated to burning down sheep camps and Trigger warning for violence against animals here. Acts of violence including clubbing, poisoning, and shooting of sheep. The vigilante cattlemen escalated their violence to a peak during the years of 1904 to 1906. In April of 1904, 2,300 sheep were killed in a single night in Lake County. In May of 1904, a delegation of sheepmen from Antelope traveled to Crook County in an effort to reach an agreement with the cattle ranchers. But this attempt was unsuccessful and 150 sheep were shot 50 miles southeast of Antelope, with many more shootings taking place the following summer. The region's sheepmen continued to advocate for nonviolent solutions and sought help from state officials with the situation. In response, a group of cattlemen calling themselves the Crook County Sheep Shooting Association urged the governor and state officials not to meddle in the affairs of, quote, our province. The range wars finally began to settle down following changes in both government regulation and land ownership. And in 1906, the federal government began regulating the use of public lands. Both cattlemen and sheepmen adjusted by purchasing land and creating corporations that could support the cost of land ownership and more intensive production methods. Although this did cause many people to leave Antelope and the surrounding areas, and in 1917, Antelope faced further troubles as State Route 97 was relocated, causing the town's businesses to struggle without the people that 97 had brought through town, and the population dwindled. As of the 2010 census, there were 28 households in Antelope, with 11% having children under the age of 18 living with them. That means that there were three households with children and 46 percent, or 13, of the households were a single person living alone and older than the age of 65. The median age for the town, again according to the 2010 census, was 62 years old. The area is now known to be a wonderful place for retirement, a small, quiet town. And now, on to our story. Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh was born as Chandra Mohan Jain on December 11, 1931, in India. He was the eldest of 11 children of a cloth merchant. He lived with his maternal grandparents until he was eight years old. His grandparents gave him freedom, providing no real formal education, up until his grandfather died when he was seven, and he was sent back to live with his parents at that point. The death of his grandfather hit him hard and affected his childhood greatly. The death of his childhood girlfriend, followed by the death of his cousin from typhoid when he was 15 years old, led him to have a fascination with death. As far as education goes, Rajneesh was a gifted but rebellious student. He grew to become critical of traditional religion and took up other interests to center himself, such as breath control, yoga, meditation, fasting, the occult, and hypnosis. He was also briefly associated with socialism and multiple Indian nationalist organizations. At the age of 19, in 1951, Rajneesh began studying at Hitkarini College. However, this was short-lived as he was asked to leave the college after multiple conflicts with an instructor. He transferred to D.N. Jain College. He was such a disruption with his argumentative behavior that he was allowed to not attend college classes and just show up for exams after studying the materials on his own time. This freed up some of his time to allow for him to work as an assistant editor at a local newspaper, and he began speaking publicly at the annual Sarva Dharma Smilan, which means Meeting of All Faiths, an event in which he would participate from 1951 to 1968. His parents pressured him to marry, a request that he simply ignored. He would later say he became spiritually enlightened on March 21, 1953, when he was 21 years old, in a mystical experience while sitting under a tree in a garden. In 1955, he completed his bachelor's in philosophy and joined the University of Sagar, which he earned his master's in philosophy in 1957. He immediately began a teaching career at Raipur Sanskrit College, but shortly after accepting the position, he was asked to transfer by the vice chancellor, who cited that Rajneesh was a danger to his students' morality, character, and religion. Rajneesh then became a lecturer at Jabalpur University in 1958 and was promoted to professor in 1960. He became a popular lecturer and was acknowledged by his peers as being an exceptionally intelligent man. He also traveled through India, giving lectures in opposition of socialism, Gandhi, and institutional religions. He believed that what India needed was capitalism, science, technology, and birth control. He criticized Orthodox Indian religions as being filled with an empty ritual, oppressing their followers with fears of damnation and promises of blessings. His statements made him controversial, but also gained him a loyal following that included wealthy merchants and businessmen. In 1962, he began consulting individuals about their spiritual development and lives in return for donations, and this snowballed into meditation camps, and eventually meditation centers began to pop up around his teachings, which at the time was called the Life Awakening Movement. After a controversial speaking tour in 1966, he resigned from his job as a professor at the request of the university. He continued his lecture series and later published a book under the title, From Sex to Superconsciousness, in which he scandalized Hindu leaders by calling for freer acceptance of sex and thus became known as the sex guru in the Indian press. In 1970, Rajneesh introduced his dynamic meditation method for the first time which involved breathing very fast and celebrating with music and dance, and also initiated his first group of disciples in the fall of that year. To become a disciple, you would undergo a name change and wear the traditional orange dress of Hindu holy men, including the beaded necklace, and they carried a locket with his picture. However, he encouraged his followers to not worship him. Around this time, he acquired a secretary who was his first disciple and had taken the name Ma Yoga Lakshmi. Lakshmi happened to come from a wealthy family and raised the money that enabled Rajneesh to stop traveling and settle down. In December of 1970, he moved to Mumbai, where he gave lectures and received visitors, including his first Western visitors. He rarely traveled and stopped speaking at public meetings. The following year, in 1971, he adopted the name Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Bhagwan means blessed one, and is used in Indian tradition as a term of respect for a human being in whom the divine is no longer hidden but apparent. And Sri is roughly the English equivalent to Sir. The humid climate of Mumbai began to cause health problems to Rajneesh, and in a short period of time, he developed diabetes, asthma, and numerous allergies. So in 1974, he moved to a property in Pune that was purchased by Ma Yoga Maka, who was a Greek shipping heiress. The property was six acres of land and had two adjoining houses and became the center of an ashram, which in Indian culture is like a spiritual monastery. Rajneesh spoke there from 1974 to 1981. During this time, a woman named Sheila Silverstein joined with her husband Mark. Sheila was born Sheila Patel in 1949 in India. When she was 18, she moved to the U.S. to attend college in New Jersey, and then moved to Illinois, where she married Mark. Shortly after, they made the move to India in search of spiritual enlightenment, where they both became disciples of Rajneesh. Sheila, over the years, would work her way into being one of Rajneesh's closest advisors and insisted on Rajneesh building an international brand. This started with audio, video, and printing of courses for worldwide distribution and caused the number of Western visitors to increase. The ashram grew to host an arts and crafts center that produced clothes, jewelry, ceramics, cosmetics, and also hosted performances of theater, music, and mime. In 1975, the ashram began to host meditations with therapy groups, which became a major source of income. The Puni Ashram was an intense, emotionally charged place to be. The day began at 6 a.m. with dynamic meditation, followed by a 60-90 to minute lecture by Rajneesh. Then various meditations and therapies would take place throughout the day, and in the evening, Rajneesh would converse individually with visitors. His followers would come for these talks when departing or returning, or if they had a specific topic they needed to discuss. To select the activities they should participate in during the day, many would consult Rajneesh. One of the therapy groups in the ashram was the Encounter Group, which was an experiment that allowed for a degree of physical aggression as well as sexual encounters between participants. Conflicting reports began to surface in the press that participants in the Encounter Group sessions had reported injuries, and other therapists found the group encouraged participants to be violent, rather than play at being violent, which was the norm for encounter groups. One such therapist claims to have an experience at the Puni Ashram, in which he suffered a broken arm while being locked in a room with other participants who were armed with wooden weapons. The violence in the therapy group was ended in January of 1979. Followers who had graduated from months of meditation and therapy could apply to work at the ashram, And this typically involved hard, unpaid labor, and supervisors were chosen for their abrasive personalities. The image of the ashram took another hit after allegations of drug use among the followers. And some of the Western followers were allegedly financing extended stays in India through sex work and drug running. Down the road, a few people would allege that while Rajneesh was not directly involved, he did give his blessing for such activities, and had even discussed the plans with them. On the surface, people were attracted to the spiritual side that Rajneesh and his ashrams provided by using meditation and having agreed with his beliefs, many of which were normal or at least normal-ish, but lines and boundaries began to loosen. He basically preached to do whatever feels good and attachment to material things was fine and sex was something that should be explored freely. By the end of the 70s, the Puni ashram was too small for the rapid growth and Rajneesh asked that they find a new, larger location. In 1980, one of the first surveys was conducted to find out exactly who his followers were. An American clinical psychologist polled 300 American followers and found that the median age was just over 30. 60% had been followers for less than two years and most continued to live in the U.S. Half came from California. 97% were white and 85% were either middle or upper middle class two-thirds had university degrees, and more than half had previously experimented in another spiritual group. It is estimated that 20% of his followers had a master's degree, which the national average of Americans having a master's degree is 10%. Since they were outgrowing their current location, followers around India began searching for properties, and they narrowed it down to a top three. However, the plans were never put into action, as mounting tensions between the ashram and the government resulted in the process being stalled. Land use approval was denied, and the government stopped issuing visas to foreign visitors who indicated their main destination was the ashram. The government also canceled the tax-exempt status of the ashram, with respective effect resulting in a claim that was estimated at $5 million. There were also conflicts with various religious leaders that aggravated the situation, and in May of 1980, a young Hindu fundamentalist made an unsuccessful assassination attempt on Rajneesh's life. By the following year, the ashram hosted 30,000 visitors per year, and the audience was predominantly European and American. Rajneesh's lecture style began to change from intellectually focused to being filled with ethnic or dirty jokes, intended to shock the audience. On April 10, 1981, 15 years into his daily lectures, Rajneesh entered a three and a half year of self-imposed public silence. Around the same time, Sheila replaced Ma Yoga Laxmi as Rajneesh's secretary. With all of the criticism and punitive action threatened by the Indian government, the ashram began to consider establishing a new commune in the United States in an effort that was led by Sheila. And on June 1st, 1981, Rajneesh traveled to the U.S. on a travel visa for what he claimed were medical purposes, and he spent several months at a Rajneesh retreat center in Montclair, New Jersey. He had been diagnosed with a prolapsed disc, and had not been able to find proper care in India, so Sheila set him up with care in the U.S., as she felt it would be the best bet if he ended up needing surgery. Although they stated the serious nature of the situation on his visa application, Rajneesh never sought outside medical treatment while in the U.S. By this point, Sheila was the head of the Rajneesh Foundation International, and had moved on to her second marriage. On June 13, 1981, Sheila's second husband, who was also a disciple, named John Shelfer, signed a purchase contract to buy a $5.75 million property in Oregon, near the tiny town of Antelope. The ranch was over 65,000 acres that spread over Wasco and Jefferson counties, and was previously known as the Big Muddy Ranch. When Rajneesh moved in the following August, it was renamed Rancho Rajneesh. The locals reacted from a range between hostile to tolerant. Sheila attempted to charm the community by holding big parties where the locals could drink and party and she purchased 50 head of cattle from the Wasco County Commissioner despite the fact that the commune was vegetarian. They were taking over the town in their red, pink, and purple robes and when it came time for important meetings they would show up in their regular street clothes. Public opinion began to spiral downward quickly after Rajneesh and his followers began causing problems. The new commune was trying to develop different portions of their land. Their ranch was zoned only for agriculture, which was made clear at the time of purchase, yet the Rajneesh, well, mostly Sheila, continued to develop the land. They were only allowed to put up a few single family homes with the possibility of some migrant housing. They wanted to build spaces to hold thousands, warehouses, dining halls, etc. They were met with opposition by local, state, and federal government, and the group began a series of legal battles within months of arriving, primarily in regards to land use. The commune leadership was impatient and unwilling to compromise when dealing with the locals, and sued neighbors and anyone else who was preventing them from using the land as they pleased. They were confrontational and had no trouble threatening people in order to have their demands met. One way the commune fought dirty to win elections was by importing a large number of homeless people from various U.S. cities by bus, promising them food and shelter in exchange for their vote. This caused issues within the commune. With fights breaking out and rowdy parties happening, Sheila began putting tranquilizers in the kegs in an attempt to keep things civil and as soon as the election was over, they bussed them out to surrounding cities and just left them. The state of Oregon stepped in to help the people get back to their home cities at the state of Oregon's expense. Through this tactic, members of the Rajneesh movement were able to obtain positions on the City Council of Antelope, and attempted to influence votes to swing their way. In March of 1982, local residents of Antelope formed a group called Citizens for Constitutional Cities, for people who wanted to oppose the ranch development. They filed an initiative petition that would order the governor to contain, control, and remove the threat of invasion by an alien cult. In May of 1982, the residents of Rancho Rajneesh voted to incorporate it as the city of Rajneesh Purim, escalating the conflict with the locals. The conflict would continue for years, and coalitions began to put pressures on Rajneesh Purim. The Oregon legislature went on to pass several bills that sought to stop or slow the development of Rajneesh Purim, including the House Bill 3080, which stopped distribution of revenue-sharing funds for any city whose legal status had been challenged. This change only affected Rajneesh Purim. The governor of Oregon stated in 1982 that they should leave Oregon since their neighbors didn't like them. And in May of 1982, U.S. Senator Mark Hatfield called to the INS in Portland, stating that he was very concerned that a religious cult is endangering the way of life for a small agricultural town and is a threat to public safety. Such actions typically do tend to influence immigration decisions. 1,000 Friends of Oregon, whose mission statement reads, quote, Our mission is working with Oregonians to enhance our quality of life by building livable urban and rural communities, protecting family farms and forests, and conserving natural areas. Once involved, they immediately took administrative actions to void the corporation and caused buildings and improvements to be removed. One thousand friends publicly called for the city to be dismantled, and filed a lawsuit that, if they won, would force the removal of the septic system and tear down many of the buildings. Sheila attempted to bribe 1,000 Friends with money, but they brushed her off, and from then on, they were enemies. Sheila would portray 1,000 Friends as a politically motivated group who was more interested in attacking religion than land issues. She went on a press campaign attempting to use her sharp tongue as a means to get her way. She was known for attacking talk show hosts who questioned her, spewing insults with every breath at them and anyone who was preventing the development of the land. Another way the residents of Rajneesh Purim fought back was by winning spots on the city council and infiltrating important boards. At one point, to attempt to control the outcome of an election in 1983 the Oregon Attorney General filed a lawsuit seeking to declare the city void because of an alleged violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment of the Constitution. In September of 1984, the Antelope City Council, that had been overtaken by Rajneesh followers, voted to change the town's name from Antelope to Rajneesh, infuriating the locals. They changed the names of all the streets and even had the police officers wearing the pink and purple uniforms just like the security officers they had on their ranch. The commune used intimidation tactics, like following the government leaders who were rejecting their efforts to develop the land, even parking outside their homes and watching them and their families. Police said their hands were tied since they technically weren't doing anything illegal. They also took a petty approach as well, which including putting nails in tires of their opponents, And on one occasion, Sheila held a courthouse door open for the state's deputy attorney general, who had his hands full of books, and once he walked through the doorway, she stuck her foot out and tripped him, sending him and the books flying as a group of Rajneesh followers laughed at him. Their antics took the most sinister turn to date in 1984. At this point, the Big Muddy Ranch, or Rancho Rajneesh, had thousands of followers calling it home, With full control of Antelope, they set their sights on taking over the Wascow County Commission as well as the Sheriff's Office. With authorities onto their last trick of busing in homeless people, election laws were changed to prevent this from happening. So 12 leaders from the commune came up with a plan to incapacitate voters in the Dalles, where the majority of voters for the county resided in an effort to sway the election. They used the Rajneesh Purim Medical Laboratory because, mind you, the commune had all sorts of amenities to accommodate the growing population. They used the medical lab on the commune property to culture salmonella bacteria they had purchased from a medical supply company in Seattle. Eight members then spread the salmonella on produce at grocery stores throughout the Dalles, a nursing home salad bar, the courthouse bathrooms, and even attempted to introduce pathogens into the Dallas water system. This was their trial run, and if successful, they planned to do an even larger-scale operation closer to the election. It did not have the desired effect, so they hit the lab to make the liquid more potent. In August, two county commissioners visited the ranch to discuss the building plans, and on a scorching hot day, they were given a glass of water that was tainted with salmonella. Both got violently ill, and one had to be hospitalized for four days. In September and October of 1984, they contaminated 10 local restaurants by sprinkling the more potent liquid on salad bars, infecting 751 people. 45 people had to be hospitalized, but thankfully everyone survived. The victims ranged in age from a newborn, who was born two days after his mother had been infected and was initially only given a 5% chance of survival, to an 87-year-old. The symptoms caused the victims to become violently ill, with symptoms that included diarrhea, fever, chills, nausea, vomiting, headaches, abdominal pain, and bloody stools. Locals immediately began to suspect that Rajneesh's followers were behind the poisonings, but officials didn't have enough to prove it. However, locals turned out in droves on Election Day to prevent the cult from winning any county positions, therefore rendering the plot completely unsuccessful. Only 239 of the commune's 7,000 residents voted, as most were not U.S. citizens and could not vote. The outbreak cost local restaurants hundreds of thousands of dollars, and health officials shut down the salad bars of the affected establishments, at one point blaming the outbreak on poor hygiene by the food workers. Even after they were reopened, many residents preferred to eat at home, fearing further attacks. Very few public officials were vocal on their belief that the Rajneesh followers had caused the salmonella outbreak, and those who did were called crazy and were reassured that they had nothing to do with it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Let's take a minute to talk about teeth. Between my AM love of coffee and my PM love of red wine, my teeth definitely need some attention to keep them whiter and brighter. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about my new sponsor, Smile Brilliant. If you're like me, you're confused by all of the teeth whitening products on the market. But since taking Smile Brilliant on as a sponsor, I've learned that the number one dentist recommended product is the custom fitted tray. However, they're very, very costly at the dentist's office. That's why the best option is Smile Brilliant. With their lab's direct process, you can have a custom-fitted teeth whitening tray at a fraction of the price without a single visit to the dentist. Using an exact model of your teeth, Smile Brilliant's lab technicians will handcraft your trays to ensure the best possible results. Simply order the system at smilebrilliant.com, make your dental impressions at home, and return them to Smile Brilliant using the prepaid envelope provided. In a matter of a week, your trays will be back in the mail. As an Upper Left Corner listener, enjoy 30% off site-wide at smilebrilliant.com using code UPPERLEFT, all one word. That code is also good on their other amazing products, such as their night guards or electric toothbrushes. Head on over to smilebrilliant.com today. Your business deserves the same expertise as that of a Fortune 500 company. If you need a CIO-level service, why hire a full-time staff member at $250,000 a year when you can get this on-demand service for fractions of the cost? As your CIO on-demand, will give you the steps you need to take so as to minimize interruption to your business and profitability and provide you and your business with training and education to prevent future attacks. To get an efficiency review for your business today, contact us at... Www.ee-services.com. And now back to the story. In 1985, the Rajneesh Inner Circle got diabolical once more when they planned an assassination of Charles Turner, a U.S. attorney for the state of Oregon. He had been appointed to investigate the group's activities, including the sham marriages, immigration fraud, and the bioterror attack in the Dalles. As Charles Turner was working on his grand jury investigation, Sheila began to worry that his findings would mean the end of the commune and persecution of Rajneesh. So Sheila and several other leaders in the group put together a hit list that included Charles Turner, Oregon Attorney General David Fraunmeyer, former Assistant Attorney General Karen Green, Wasco County Planning Director Daniel Duro, Wasco County Commissioner James Kamini, The Oregonian investigative journalist Leslie Zaitz, who had released a 20-part expose on the Rajneesh community, and former member Helen C. Byron. In the spring of 1985, Sheila and several followers traveled to New York to acquire false identification. They then used the false birth certificates in Texas to attempt to buy guns. However, they were turned away for having out-of-state identifications. And they traveled to New Mexico and successfully purchased multiple pistols and boarded a Greyhound bus home since they would likely be stopped at an airport metal detector. They began surveilling Charles Turner and after getting his license plate number, they were able to find his home address. They rented an apartment in Portland to carry out their plan, which included ambushing him in the parking garage of the federal building that he worked. However, Sheila decided against the assassination after being talked out of it by another member. And she also got distracted with the politics and power plays within the Rajneesh community. There was also an attempt to assassinate a rural Oregon politician named James Kamini. A follower dressed as a nurse entered St. Vincent's Hospital in Portland with a syringe filled with drugs that would stop his heart. Komini was recovering from an ear surgery, and the plan was to inject the drugs into his IV bag. However, when she entered the room, he did not have an IV, and the follower panicked and left. During the years prior to the bioterror attack, Rajneesh was behind the scenes and had withdrawn from his public role in what the commune referred to as a period of silence. During his public silence, he only communicated with a few of his disciples, including Sheila and his caretaker girlfriend, Ma Yoga Vivek. He lived in a travel trailer next to a covered swimming pool, and the only interaction with his followers was his Rolls Royce drive-by ceremonies. He gained public notoriety for collecting the spendy luxury cars. At one point, his collection of Rolls Royces topped out at 93. In 1981, he had given Sheila limited power of attorney and removed any limits in 1982. In 1983, Sheila announced that going forward, he would only speak with her. At this point, she was world-renowned for her strange interactions with the press. During a trip to Australia in the 80s, Sheila royally botched a business deal in which she had manipulated her way into part ownership of a public company. But when news of the ownership went public the value plummeted overnight, causing the commune to lose nearly $1 million. When she arrived back home, the guru began incessantly demanding to expand his Rolls-Royce collection, attempting to break the world record as the man with the most, and it was costing the financially struggling commune $200,000 a month. He also had his eye on a watch valued at $1 million, and told Sheila to divert funds from the commune's needs if necessary. The financial hits kept coming when an elderly former member was awarded a $1.7 million settlement stemming from a lawsuit over an unpaid loan. During the trial, a team was sent by Sheila to poison the woman, but their attempt was unsuccessful. Sheila's outrageous behavior caused some of the residents of Rajneesh Purim to question Sheila and her intentions. Rumblings began and other higher-ups got into Rajneesh's ear about it. Multiple people attempted to rein Sheila and her behavior in, and as you can imagine, she did not take it well. So now, not only was the commune taking on Antelope, the state of Oregon, and various land advocacy groups, they were falling apart internally as well. To add fuel to the fire, a group of wealthy Californians moved into the commune and began to lavish the guru with jewelry and fancy gifts, which allotted them to live differently from other followers. They lived in their own house, forgoing the dorm room experience. They drove a Jaguar and opted out of the group dining experience. They became close with Rajneesh's doctor, dentist, and other people in the community, and Sheila did not like it. She bugged many private rooms, including everywhere Rajneesh went, and listened in on every interaction he was having with others. Sheila's behavior escalated within the commune as well, and at one point, she was putting together plans to kill multiple members that she viewed as a threat to the guru. She made good on that threat in 1985 when she enlisted one of her insiders to inject a lethal amount of adrenaline into a doctor she felt was a threat. The man was sitting cross-legged on the floor of a lecture when a woman leaned over and whispered into his ear and then stabbed him in the buttocks with the adrenaline. He later passed away at a Bend hospital. To top it off, residents without U.S. citizenship began to have troubles with their visas, and some tried to overcome this by entering a marriage of convenience. Commune administrators declared Rajneesh as the head of a religion that they named Rajneeshism. He began increasing his emphasis on his prediction that the world would be destroyed by a nuclear war or other disasters in the 1990s. Rajneesh had been making this claim since as early as 1964, that the third and last war was on the way and frequently spoke of the need to create a new humanity to avoid global suicide. A 1983 article in the Rajneesh Foundation newsletter announced that, quote, Rajneeshism is creating a Noah's Ark of consciousness. I say to you that except this, there is no other way. This increased the sense of urgency in building the commune. In March of 1984, Sheila announced that Rajneesh had predicted that two-thirds of humanity would die from AIDS. During this time in Rajneesh Purim, it is said that Rajneesh was addicted to nitrous oxide that was administered by his private dentist and also took large amounts of Valium each day, a claim that he denied to the press. At the height of the Rajneesh Purim era, The group had a sophisticated legal and business structure, and had multiple front companies, including the Ranch Church, the Rajneesh Investment Corporation, and the Rajneesh Modern Car Collection Trust, whose sole purpose was to deal with the acquisition of Rolls-Royces. He had coached Sheila in using the media to her advantage, and she represented him to the press while he was in public silence, and he had given her power of attorney, But troubles between the two and the inner circle in general began to show in early 1984. A meeting was held between Sheila and Rajneesh's personal house staff and his private dentist. When Rajneesh found out, she was admonished by him. He ended his period of public silence within months of this incident, announcing that it was time to tell his truth. And in July of 1985, he began his daily speaking again and two months later, Sheila and her entire management team suddenly left the commune for Europe. Rajneesh held a press conference in which he labeled Sheila and her associates as a gang of fascists and accused them of committing serious crimes, most dating back to 1984, and invited the authorities to investigate. He alleged the crimes included the attempted murder of his personal doctor, poisonings of public officials, wiretapping within the commune, and the lethal bioterror attack that had sickened 751 people of the Dalles, Oregon. While many officials had rolled their eyes at the claims, the authorities opened an investigation and confirmed the allegations. The Salmonella attack is considered the first confirmed instance of chemical or biological terrorism to have occurred in the U.S., Eight members from the commune, including Sheila, would be charged with multiple offenses, such as attempted murder, immigration fraud, wiretapping, and arson, all associated with the criminal acts they had carried out or plotted. Sheila was arrested in West Germany in October of 1986 and extradited to the U.S. in February and charged with immigration fraud and attempted murder. The Oregon Attorney General prosecuted for the crimes related to the poisoning of the two commissioners, who had been poisoned while visiting the ranch, and for crimes related to the restaurant poisoning. Sheila pled guilty in July of 1986 to first-degree assault and conspiracy to assault for the commissioner's poisoning and wiretapping at the commune. For these crimes, Sheila was sentenced to three 20-year terms in prison to be served concurrently and she was fined $470,000. Sheila was sent to a female correctional facility in California, where she was released for good behavior in December of 1988. She only served 39 months. She then moved to Switzerland, where she remarried a fellow Rajneesh follower, and she purchased and managed two nursing homes. But it wasn't all Swiss cheese and chocolate. In 1999, she was convicted by a Swiss court for criminal acts preparatory to the commission of murder in relation to the plot to kill Charles Turner in 1985. The Swiss government refused to extradite her to the U.S., but agreed to try her in Switzerland. She was found guilty and sentenced to time served. In April of 2021, a Netflix documentary was released called Searching for Sheila, which followed her first trip to India in 35 years. In February 2020, it was announced that a film about Rajneesh Purim was in the works at Amazon Studios with Priyanka Chopra to star as Sheila. It is reported that Sheila did not prove of the actress portraying her and sent a legal notice to Priyanka demanding that she quit the project or she would take legal action. It is unknown if the film is moving forward. Although no evidence has surfaced to prove that Rajneesh had anything to do with the crimes, it is noted that Sheila was an easy scapegoat, as she had left the country and multiple law enforcement officers who surveyed affidavits that have never been publicly released insinuated that Rajneesh was incriminated in many of her crimes. On September 30th, 1985, Rajneesh denied that he was a religious teacher and his followers burned 5,000 copies of the book Rajneeshism, an introduction to Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and his religion, which was a 78-page compilation of his teachings. He ordered the book burning to rid them of the last traces of the influence of Sheila, whose robes were also added to the fire. According to court testimony by Ma Ava, a prominent disciple, Sheila played a tape to followers in which Rajneesh spoke about the need to kill people to strengthen the wavering commune. The gist was that he believed it would be necessary to kill people in order to stay in Oregon. He also stated that killing people wasn't a bad thing, and that, quote, Actually, Hitler was a great man, although he could not say that publicly because nobody would understand that. Hitler had a great vision. On October 23, 1985, a federal grand jury indicted Rajneesh and several other disciples with conspiracy to evade immigration laws. The indictment was returned privately in the judges' chambers, but word got back to Rajneesh's lawyer. Rumors of a National Guard takeover of Rajneesh Purim caused tension and fear, and based on Sheila's tape recordings, the authorities believed if they did take action in that manner, they would have used women and children as human shields if the arrests were ever made at the commune. However, three days later, Rajneesh and his followers were arrested aboard a rented Learjet in North Carolina. According to authorities, the group was en route to Bermuda to avoid prosecution. Authorities recovered $58,000 in cash as well as 35 watches and bracelets with a combined worth of $1 million aboard the jet. Officials took the full 10 days legally available to transfer Rajneesh from North Carolina to Portland, which is petty and I love it. Once he arrived for arraignment, he pled not guilty and was released on bail. However, he changed his plea per the advice of his lawyers and entered an Alford plea, which is a guilty plea through which the suspect does not admit guilt, but does concede that there is enough evidence for conviction. And this was for the count of having a concealed intent to remain permanently in the U.S. at the time of his original visa application in 1981, and one count of having conspired to have his followers enter into a sham marriage to acquire U.S. residency. Under this deal, he was given a 10-year suspended sentence, 5 years probation, he was to pay $400,000 penalty and fines, and he agreed to leave the United States, not returning for at least 5 years, and must have the permission of the United States Attorney General to ever return. Despite intense opposition, by the winter of 1984, Rancho Rajneesh had a private airport, a shopping center, a 145-room hotel, and enough A-frame cabins to accommodate thousands. In November of 1985, the city council in Antelope was finally able to vote to change the name back from Rajneesh, although all of the locals had continued to call it Antelope, and the post office had never acknowledged the name change in the first place. Rajneesh returned to India, landing in Delhi on November 17, 1985. His Indian disciples gave him a hero's welcome and denounced the United States. When non-Indians who were in his party had their visas revoked, he moved to Nepal and then a few weeks later to Greece, where he was arrested after a few days by the Greek National Intelligence Service. He then flew to Geneva, then to Stockholm and London, but was refused entry into each country. Next, Canada refused his landing permission, so his plane had to divert to Ireland to refuel. He was allowed to stay in Ireland for two weeks on the condition that he did not go out or give talks. During his stay, he was granted a Uruguayan identity card and one-year provisional residency with the possibility of permanent residency. So the group set out, but the plane had to stop in Madrid and was surrounded by authorities there. Once he made it to Uruguay, the group found a house to move into, and he began speaking publicly until June 19th, where he was invited to leave the country for no official reason. He was able to arrange a two-week visa for Jamaica, but upon arrival, the police gave the group 12 hours to leave. They stopped twice to refuel, and on July 30th, 1986, he returned to Bombay, India. In January of 1987, he returned to the ashram in Pune, where he began holding his speeches and classes each day, except for when his health was too poor to do so. He expanded the location, calling it a multiversity, where therapy was to function as a bridge to meditation. He developed new meditation therapy methods and began to lead meditation courses after he hadn't for over 10 years. His Western disciples did not form any large communes, preferring ordinary, independent living. The red and orange dress was largely abandoned, as it had become optional in 1985. Wearing the robes was reintroduced in 1989, and it was only required while on ashram premises, along with white robes for meditation and black robes for leaders. In November of 1987, Rajneesh expressed that he believed his deteriorating health was due to poisoning by the U.S. authorities while in prison. His symptoms were nausea, fatigue, pain in extremities, and lack of resistance to infections. His doctor and his former attorney, both also followers, theorized that radiation and thallium were deliberately placed in his mattress since his symptoms were concentrated to the right side of his body but they presented no evidence, and the U.S. authorities described this as complete fiction, while others suggested chronic diabetes and exposure to HIV were likely the culprit of his health troubles. In December 1988, he said he no longer wished to be referred to as Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, and in February 1989, he took the name Osho Rajneesh, which he shortened to just Osho in September. He also requested that all trademarks that were previously branded with Rajneesh be rebranded. His health continued to decline, and he delivered his last public talk in April of 1989. From then on, he simply sat in silence in front of his followers. Shortly before his death, he informed members of his inner circle that one or more audience members at his evening meetings were subjecting him to some form of evil magic. A search for the perpetrators was undertaken, but no one could be found. Rajneesh died on January 19, 1990 at 58 years old at the ashram in Pune, India. The official cause of death was listed as heart failure, but a statement released by his commune said that he died because living in his body had become hell after the alleged poisoning in the U.S. jails. Rajneesh's death still remains a mystery to some. His body was cremated within an hour of his passing, and his doctors were aware that he was passing, and no one informed his mom who was on site, and her initial reaction was that he was murdered. There are still a number of smaller centers that follow the Rajneesh movement, though many choose to lead regular solo lives while maintaining some of the practices. The commune in Pune was later named the Osho International Meditation Resort and currently attracts an estimated 200,000 visitors per year, and the followers continue to spread his beliefs from the hundreds of Osho meditation centers that have opened across the globe. After the Oregon commune was abandoned by the Rajneesh, the property reverted ownership to the state of Oregon for non-payment of taxes and was sold to Dennis, Washington, a billionaire from Montana in 1991 for $3.65 million. The ranch is currently operated by the Christian group Young Life, and it now hosts Christian youth and family camps as the Washington Family Ranch. And that is the story of the Rajneesh Purim Commune. Sources for this episode include a five part article from The Oregonian written by Les Sates, who, as you'll remember, was on Sheila's hit list. All my sources are linked in my show notes and at my website at upperleftpodcast.com. If you want more cult content, I'm sure most of my true crime buffs have already consumed this, but head over to Netflix and watch the Wild, Wild Country documentary. Some of the video footage is just unbelievable. Also, Searching for Sheila is a new release on Netflix. I have not yet watched it, it's much less interesting to me because it just focuses on Sheila and her homecoming to India, but it might be worth a watch. Now let's talk wine. You know I had to choose something red this week for my PNW wine that I paired with my True Crime. And I went with something a little different and perfect for summer. I highly recommend the Raspberry Wine by Lopez Island Vineyards. Sourced from organic berries from the Brewers Family Farm near Monroe, Washington, frozen right after harvest, the berries are then brought to Lopez, where the juice is extracted and fermented cool to bring the strongest aromas and flavors, and finished with a touch of premium brandy. This food-friendly wine is a balance of fruit and acidity, and in the finish, tastes like a handful of fresh berries, full of flavor, sweet but tart, and refreshing. My pairing suggestion would be a nice piece of dark chocolate or cheesecake. You can't really go wrong either way. Cheers and thanks for listening. This has been Upper Left Corner, a PNW true crime podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five star rating and review and share it with a friend. All of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com. While you are there, check out the Support Victim Causes tab to find the way you can help the victim's families or take a peek at my merch. You can follow me on Instagram at Upper Left Corner Pod. If you have a case suggestion or a PNW wine recommendation, please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.